0: For our scripture reading this morning, we're turning to Psalm 119, verse 169. There's not too many Bible chapters you can say that. Psalm 119, verse 169 is the tau section, is the 22nd and last, last section of Psalm 119. This is the word of our Lord. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. And your law is my delight, and my soul live. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. And let your judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is is powerful and sharp, penetrating to our hearts and dividing even the indivisible. We thank you that your word exposes our heart before you with whom we have to do. And your word reveals what's in our heart, even to ourselves. We pray as your words proclaim from this pulpit today that you would uh, wield it by your spirit and work in our hearts. We pray to keep us from error, but you'd encourage us to pursue Christ more deeply, more courageously and, and with greater faith. We're asking his name Amen. Please be seated. We greet this new year by saying goodbye to an old friend in Psalm 119. This is our 23rd sermon on Psalm 119. We have been spent. We have spent nearly a half of a year. 23 sermons is almost a half a year, though we did differently where we did morning and afternoon uh, services, uh, uh, focusing on Psalm 119, and we spent nearly half a year considering, considering the richness of the depths of the psalm, and it, it has been a great blessing to me preparing uh, these sermons, and I hope that the, the Lord has been using these sermons to also work in your heart as He has been working in my heart through them. As we have been seeing through all these sermons that this psalm is about the word of God and the god of the word more precisely this is this psalm is about the word of God and the god of the word in the context of suffering that then spills into all the contexts of life we could also say that this psalm is about living by the book living by the book and that book is the bible we are reminded time and again as we read through Psalm 119 of what our Lord taught taught us concerning life. As He's being tempted by Satan, He quotes Deuteronomy 8 and He says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In one sense, the title for the psalm or the title for the series could be Not by Bread Alone. Because that's exactly what this psalmist is teaching us, that we as believers do not live by bread alone. The psalmist has over and over professed how much he loves the Word of God, how much he wants to know the Word of God, how much he studies the Word of God, and how much he wants to live by the Word of God. Today, as we come to the end of this psalm, once again, the psalmist is going to have things to teach us about how to live the Christian life by the book. The psalmist is teaching us, once again, about how to live the life of faith. And I want us to see five things concerning living by the book in this passage, in these eight verses that conclude Psalm 119. I want us to see something about prayer. I want us to see something about, I want us to see something about distress. I want us to see something about joy. I want to see something about us to see something about law. And I want to see us to see something about straying from the Lord as we think about living by the book. So something about prayer. This section, like so many others, if not all of the sections in Psalm 119, starts with a prayer. In verse 119, the first half. The psalmist says, let my cry come before you, O Lord. And then in verse 170, let my supplication come before you. Living by the book means living by prayer. Not living on a prayer, but living by prayer. Man, no Bon Jovi fans in this audience. All right. But living by the book means living by prayer. Sometimes we think of Christianity as being something like take two, two verses and call the pastor in the morning. Some mechanistic thing that if we check a bunch of boxes, then we arrive at, at some outcome. But that's not really what Christianity is. It, Christianity is a matter of listening intently to what the scriptures teach us about the whole range of the Christian life. And that includes prayer. That living by the book is living By prayer. Have you ever been put into a situation or situations in your life where the only thing you could do about your circumstances was pray? Everything else is gone. You've tried everything else. You've worked hard. You can't not see a way out of it. The only thing left for you to do is pray. I was in a counseling session yesterday, uh, and uh, I don't know, every two minutes it kept on doing that. Somehow my Brazilian accent keeps on say, thinking, uh, Siri keeps on say, thinking that I'm saying Siri or something. But anyway, now that we killed all that we had done so far, let's uh, start again. <laughs> but have you found yourself in that place? There, there was literally nothing left that you could do about it. Uh, you're at the end of yourself, you're at the end of your rope, uh, you've you've tried everything you knew to do, and the only thing left was to leave it completely in the Lord's hand. Well, God often designs for us to be precisely in that circumstance so that we will lean on Him and on the resource of prayer. Uh, It's... uh, um, Unfortunately, a disgraced Christian author once said, and it was a good thing, so let's put the disgrace thing aside, that really Jesus is found at the end of your rope. That's where his office is. When you get to the end of your rope, that's where you're going to find Jesus. And that's where we find this psalmist. And God designs these, these, these circumstances so that we can be there. Uh, William Plummer, a commentator both on Psalms and Hebrews, says this. He says, Good men are often so situated that the only resource left to them is prayer. Now, it's interesting that prayer is never produced in our hearts because of the hard circumstances. The Holy Spirit is the one that is working in the difficulty of our circumstances, sanctifying those circumstances so that we resort to Prayer. Prayer in hard circumstances is a mercy of God that works in our hearts by the Spirit that we might be relieved from those circumstances, even if the circumstances don't change. Praying, the prayer itself, is a mercy of God. The praying itself is a mercy of God. William Plummer continues, distress is, is a natural means of stirring up us to prayer only when sanctified to us by the Holy Spirit. After the sermon this morning, we're going to Lord willing sing How Firm Our Foundation. And the third stanza of How Firm Our Foundation goes like this. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless. And notice this last clause. And sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Sanctify to you your deepest distresses. Have you ever wondered... Wondered. (laughs) Have you ever thought about what is it that you're saying or what is it that you're singing on that part of the song when you sing, sanctify to us our deepest distress? What are you singing about? What are you asking God to do when you pray to Him in song, sanctify to us our deepest distress? Well, you're saying and singing, and I trust praying exactly what Plummer was saying about prayer. Distress in and of itself does not create in us a spirit of prayer, but the Holy Spirit will sanctify our distress to us so that we resort to dependence upon God in prayer. So when we sing in how from a foundation sanctify to us our deepest distress, we are saying, Lord, by your Spirit, make even our deepest distress and our darkest dangers by the work of the Holy Spirit grow us in grace and in prayer. Do you know that the 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 God does that? He causes us to grow through the the darkest, most difficult circumstances in our lives. I love church I love history in general, so I'm often reading about history. And in historical genre biographies are my my by far my favorite favorite-est genre of uh, of historical literature and of the dozens of biographies that I've read through my life I've never come across a passage of somebody witnessing saying you know what when everything's going the best in my life I grew by leaps and bounds in the lord usually the common theme we see is that is through difficulties through through Hard circumstances, so through contrary providences, the Spirit worked in me to draw me closer to, to Christ. And we see that here in this psalm, that the psalmist in time of despair cries out to the Lord as of mercy of the Spirit. So the psalmist is once again reminding us that living by the book live means living by prayer as he begins the psalm. This section by saying, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Secondly, this, psalm, this section teaches a little bit something about distress itself. For the umpteenth time, this is a very theological, precise uh, word, for the umpteenth time, we meet the psalmist in the passage in distress. Almost every single stanza of the 22 stanzas of this psalm, the psalmist is in distress, there's something wrong going on in his life. We see that in the first, in the opening clause, where he says, let my cry come before you, O Lord. This is not a cry of praise, necessarily. It's not a cry of satisfaction. It's a, it's a, it's a cry. It's, it's a complaint. Is uh, deliver me, O Lord, sort of prayer. In verse 170, the second half, he says, deliver me according to your word. To, be, to, to, to need to be delivered means that uh, you're in trouble somehow. So again, we find the psalmist in distress and this reminds us that living by the book does not exempt us from distress and danger. I think sometimes we think that if we check some boxes, God owes us to give us a life of just ease. That if we pray every day, read our Bible, be in church, All the time that somehow everything is going to be cotton candy and unicorns for the rest of our lives. I don't know why that's supposed to be a good thing, but a life of ease if you just check these boxes. And this psalm, this section shows us, reminds us that living by the book does not exempt us from distress and from danger. Because once again, the psalmist is in a circumstance where he needs to be delivered from danger and distress. And it's not because he has not been studying God's Word, but studying God's Word does not mean that he does not encounter distress in his life. In fact, his study of God's Word is designed to equip him for when he encounters distress in the Christian life. It is so important for us to understand that when we say, live by the book, the living by the book does not exempt us from distress and danger. It actually prepares us for that. It teaches us how to respond when we are there. But it doesn't alleviate our need to depend upon God through the stress. So a life by the book does not necessitate an easy life, a life without distress. The, the third thing that this passage teaches about living by the book, is that it teaches us something about joy. Look at verse 171. It says, My lips shall utter praise. And then in verse 172, My tongue shall speak of your word. I think some translations have shall sing of your word. That, that's really the idea here. And in 175, the first half says, Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. Now this is going to sound perhaps counterintuitive to some of you. But just stay with me for a moment, and I think this may, may make sense. Living by the book means living a life of joy and praise. It is of the essence of a Christian to have joy. Now, do you understand what I, say when, what I mean when I say it is of the essence of the Christian? If you take joy of the description of a Christian, you no longer have the description of a Christian. That's what it means to be of the essence of of something. The psalmist moved not only by God's deliverance, but by God's word, pours forth praise to God. God has made us to be glad in Him. And one of the ways that we witness to His grace in our lives is to live lives of joy and praise. Isaac Watts was a a post-Puritan uh, pastor, He was the very next generation. The Puritanism ended in 1662 when Charles II, by the way, has, not, has never been a good king of England by the name of Charles. <laughs> just, just putting that out there. But when Charles II in 1662 declared the act of, the, enacted the act of conformity, all Puritans were kicked out of the Church of England. The next generation still followed their teachings, but it's not the pure anymore because they, they don't have a church to purify anymore. So Isaac Watts often um, grabbed Psalms and then wrote them in metered fashion, changed a couple words or two to bring Christ more clearly from the Psalms. And in Psalm 23, the last line of that psalm in Watts' rendition says this, And let thy house be my abode, and all my work be praised. That's the prayer. Let, my house, let, let, let thy house be my abode, and all my works be praised. And he's picturing what David is praying there. And David is picturing what it will be like to be finally home with God forever. That his praise, that his house will be a house of praise. He just wants his dwelling place to be where his shepherd Shepherd king's dwelling place is. And he wants his one work to be praise, to praise him. That's David's desire. That's the Holy Spirit's desire for God's people. That is our testimony. Now, there is enough sorrow in our lives, here in this room, that we could, if we let ourselves, cry for the rest of our lives. Do you get that? If we let ourselves do that, we would not be living up to the joy that is and ought to be in our hearts. Because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches as an indicative, the Bible says that every Christian is filled with joy. That's an indicative, that's a reality of the Christian. And then it turns and it turns that into a command as an imperative, and now live that joy out. Nehemiah, as a representative believer, said that the joy of the Lord was his strength. That's what motivated him to live. Why is it that we have a hard time living with joy? Think that for a minute. Why is it that we have... We don't have to answer a lot, but just think for a moment. I know it's January 1st. It was a late night last night. And if you... Close your eyes to think you might not open them again. (laughs) So next prayer, we're going to pray with our eyes open. But um, why is it that you think that it's so hard for us to live joyfully? I think that it is because we have a hard time accepting exactly what Jesus has done for us. The joy and praise that we are called to live out and express does not mean that hard things are absent from our lives. It means that God's grace is present in our life, and the greatest problem that we have ever faced has been dealt with. If you're a believer, the greatest problem you have ever faced or will ever face has already been dealt with. It's done, it is finished. We spend so much time looking at problems that we are overwhelmed by them. And, you know, some of you would say that that is a description of your pastor, but I'm just a realist. I'm not a pessimist. <laughs> I'm not a cynical, right? I'm just a, a realist. Um, I was talking to somebody either Wednesday or last Sunday about the idea of a, cap, a cup half full. And a cup or a cup half empty, and the reality is, I'm a cup half empty by nature, a cup half empty person, and that's not a good thing to be. So, do as I say, not necessarily as I, as I do. But we spend so much time looking at problems and are overwhelmed by them, we often respond to, to being overwhelmed by those problems with fear, with bitterness, with anger with anguish, with despair, with sorrow. But the biggest problem we have ever faced was a consequence of our enmity with God. And God himself has taken that away at the expense of his own son. Because of that, there should be joy and praise in our hearts and lives no matter what else is going on. That is living by the book. An example of that is Acts chapter 16, where Silas and Paul are in prison, shackled in a very uncomfortable position, expecting to be killed by the morning. And what is it they're doing? They're singing hymns and praises to the Lord. It's not a fake thing, it's not a fake joy. It's not a on the outside joy. Have you ever seen depression medicine commercials? The person carries around a little smiley face and with us. That's not what we're calling here. You have the joy of the Lord because you have the Spirit of the Lord in you. Now we live out that reality in the Spirit. Do you think people out there get that about us? Is that something that would be that that, that people out there would say? about the saints at the Bible Presbyterian Church of Olympia? If not, let us pray that the Lord would more obviously manifest in us our joy in Him. Let us pray that the Lord would not let us be so overburdened by the anxieties and cares of this life. Let us pray that the joy that He has put in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would not fail to radiate radiate in our relationships with others. Let us pray that the joy that... Remember the little song? Um, Joy, joy, joy. Deep in my heart. Where? Deep in... Let us pray that that joy is not so deep that it can't come out. That the joy that's there would just spring forth into our living In 2023, living by the book means a life of joy and praise. Fourthly, living by the book uh, also has something to do with the law of God. And this section of the psalm teaches us something about the law of God. Look at verse 174, the second half. He says, and your law is my delight. Then 175, the the second half, and your judgments help me. We live in a day and age where m- many people just don't like rules and is celebrated in pop culture. Okay. Has any here anybody here watched Frozen? Okay, you can raise your hand. Raise your hand. There we go. Good job, Keith. <laughs> Keith is <laughs> What is Frozen all about? Can anybody tell me any of the kids? Okay, uh, Braven, what's, what's Frozen all about? <coughs> about two sisters in Hawaii for the summer? <laughs> no. What else can you tell me about? Uh, Miles, can you tell me anything about Frozen? No? All right. Well, what is Frozen all about? Remember where the song goes? Let it go. Right now you're going to spend the rest of the day singing that in your head. Let it go. Isn't Frozen all about breaking the rules? Isn't the heroine, the star, the protagonist, the most important person, uh, she finds fulfillment when she realizes that she doesn't have to keep the rules, that that she can just let it go? The song actually says this: "It is time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free." And that is really the, what our culture teaches today. There's is, there is a celebration of how nobody's going to bind Elsa by their rules. Elsa is, is the OK. <laughs> I should have watched as a review for but I didn't. Uh, uh, there is the celebration of how nobody is going to bind Elsa by their rules. And that's a reflection of our society. She's supposed to just let it go. Well, the psalmist says, your judgments, your rules help me. They don't rain on my parade. They don't ruin my life. They don't grant my style. They help me. Law phobia or rule phobia is a sign. And listen to this. This disregard for law, the dislike for law is a sign, especially the law of God, is a sign of deficient faith and a sign that one has not yet drunk deeply of the well of God's grace and does not yet know the Father's loving purposes for good stored up in the commandments of His Word. It is those who have been made friends with God by grace, we realize that the law is no longer their accuser, but their friend. The law is there to help them. It is a, lot, a rule of life, not a curse of death. Living by the book means maturing beyond an anti law spirit that hates commands and rules because these commands in the Word of God are meant to bless us. Lastly, the fifth thing. That this psalm tells, this section of the psalm tells us about living by the book. It tells us something about straying, straying. Look at verse one, seven, six. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Isn't it appropriate that when you get to the very last verse of an entire psalm? that has been devoted to the glory of God's Word, and in which we have met repeated expressions of the psalmist's determination to obey God's Word, that we have a prayer on the part of the psalmist for what he wants God to do when he doesn't obey that Word that he's been emphasizing now for 175 verses. Brothers and sisters, living by the book means more than treasuring God's Word and studying God's Word, and praying God's Word, and being guided by by God's Word. Living by the book means a humble, repentant, dependent spirit that recognizes that we will still need the Lord's rescue in our life. As Christians, we still need the Lord's rescue in our lives. Loving and studying the Word of God attentively does not mean that we will never stray in our Christian lives or that we'll never need God's rescue. In fact, our study of the book, our study of the Bible teaches us to doubt our faithfulness and to trust the faithfulness of our shepherd. The psalmist, precisely because his nose was in the book, ends with a prayer. He says, Lord, when I stray, I know, and I know I will because I really believe this book. I want to ask you this one thing come after me like a lost sheep. Don't leave me to my own devices and desires. Come, rescue me because I will need you. Brothers and sisters, if we are honest, we all know that from time to time we find ourselves in places where the only hope for us is the Lord's rescue. We find ourselves. Straying. This is true of me, it's true of your elders, and it's true, of, it's true of all of us. We find ourselves wavering in our faith. We find ourselves wavering in our commitment to the Lord. We find ourselves wavering in our commitment to obedience to His Word. And this is important because if, we don't, if we're not willing to recognize that, we're not going to seek the Lord for His rescue. But there's another thing that this reminds us of. This should also remind us that even our beloved Christian friends also struggle with that same thing. Even though it may be a different sin than the ones that we may go astray with. Isn't it interesting how we tend to be patient with ourselves in our own sins and impatient with other Christians in different since a uh, well-known a Christian writer said, if you want to get Christians angry, put them around other people sinning differently from them. That's where righteous indignation supposedly comes, comes up. We may want to cry out that the Lord will rescue us when we go astray, but do we show kindness and mercy When we see others going astray differently from us. Our hearts as concerned for their restoration as we are for our own. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, said the following. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forget the, forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law. This is C.S. Lewis, okay? <laughs> to, keep, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, he says, by remembering where we stand By meaning our words, when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse this is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. My brothers and sisters, we know in our hearts that we will need God to rescue us when we stray. And we rightly pray that He will. Pray that for others who are sinning differently from you, even if that sin is against you. This is a mark of grace, and that's something that we need. To live by the book is to acknowledge that there is a danger of straying, not just for ourselves, but from those around us. And out of kindness and mercy, will seek the Lord to restore us. And so we come to the conclusion of our study on the psalm. As I've said before, when we finish a series, it's kind of like a... And I used to say that now um, before, and now I have experiential knowledge. It's like a a kid moving out of the house. Things are never going to be the same. And it's unlikely that as a pastor, I'll ever come back to Psalm 119 to preach another series unless you guys fire me and I go to some other church and then I'll preach the same series over there. Um, But we're done. We concluded, perhaps never come back. May God make us, all of us, to live by this book as this song so thoroughly, deeply, and helpfully point us to do. Let us live by the book. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a good God to us. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us through your word. We pray that we value this word and that we would not be not only hearers of this word but also doers of it. That we might have great joy in it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.